Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Future Cities Podcast. I am Jason Sauer, and you might remember my voice from the earliest two or three episodes of the podcast, where I introduced myself as a host alongside Vivian Verdusco and Stephen Elser. And for this month's episode, I have uh, creative control, so I decided to focus on two issues facing many of us researchers in the network, but myself in particular, and those issues are of green gentrification as well as the unintended effects of resilience research. So starting off, the term green gentrification can be defined mostly by its parts. So gentrification is the process by which uh, residents and neighborhoods are replaced over time by wealthier individuals. So the term green gentrification can be defined basically by defining its parts. Uh, Gentrification itself is the process by which residents in a neighborhood are replaced over time by wealthier individuals. And green, in this case, just refers to a sort of broad set of green features in cities, like park spaces, trees, ponds, community gardens. And these can be either natural or man-made or managed by people. And depending on who you're talking to, some people might actually lump in other forms of more gray infrastructure that sort of serve environmental purposes. So, like, bike lanes might be a good example of that. But anyway, putting these terms together, green gentrification is more or less population overturn in areas of cities specifically, or at least in large part, due to the presence or installation of green features. And so believe it or not, as abstract as that definition might seem, green gentrification is a real thing, and it's something that you probably participate in. And so imagine that you need to or want to move to a new home. And imagine further that you make enough money that you can demand certain things uh, from the place you'll move. So in addition to the features of the homes that you're looking at, um, you're probably also taking note of the sorts of green features in the neighborhood. Uh, So are there a lot of shade trees around? Are there nearby parks? Do people have cute front yard gardens? And so you would probably want to live in a place that has these sorts of green features rather than live in a place that's like all concrete and asphalt. So the people who own and sell these properties know that. They're probably trying to extract more money out of their current tenants and potential buyers like you because of those green features. And so let's think a bit more about the sort of dynamics of the people moving into and moving out of these homes. So do the current tenants own the property? Do you, the buyer, share the same socio-demographic traits like race or income as the previous tenants? And in cities, it's very probable that the answer to these questions is no. And in many cases in urban areas, because of green infrastructure initiatives, property values are going up, historical tenants are being coerced through various pricing mechanisms to move out, and new tenants with different demographics are replacing them. And so this is more or less how green gentrification works. And green gentrification is a problem for many of us in the research network because many of us are advocating for the installation or preservation or improvement of green infrastructure in urban areas. For example, I work in Valdivia, Chile, which is a gorgeous city in the southern part of the country. Um, The city itself is built in a sort of temperate rainforest, similar to the Pacific Northwest, for those of you who know that region of the United States. Um, So it's cool. It sits at low latitude. It gets a lot of rain. It's also close to the ocean, and it's at the meeting point of three rivers. So with all this water, Valdivia is the home to a network of natural urban wetlands. And I am currently in Valdivia studying how these wetlands might help protect the city from current floods as well as future floods as climate change alters the amounts and timing of rainstorms in the city. And so it's a fairly pure scientific endeavor. Uh, It's much more hydrology than anything else. Uh, But my findings could wind up being a driver of green gentrification. 
if, for example, I show that these wetlands will be increasingly valuable for dealing with stormwater in the years to come, given patterns of developments in the city as well as climate change, then it is possible that the homes around these wetlands may be valued more than those not built around wetlands. And so if my research is used to recommend the preservation or conservation of these wetlands, then it's likely that their other services like aesthetics or recreation will also be actively managed. Uh, and that can also raise the property values of the nearby homes. It's sort of similar to recommending the installation or the improvements of a nearby park. I'm not exactly comfortable with the thought of contributing to green gentrification, and it's increasingly unsettling to me how scientific work like mine can become sources of economic problems for people. It's not necessarily my job as a scientist to be concerned about these things. There's certainly no wrong or right, scientifically, to green gentrification. And there are no statements uh, within the research network on where we fall with regard to green gentrification. But it does bother me as a person doing science uh, that I'm potentially contributing to green gentrification. If people in Valdivia move, then let it be because of personal interests or some other factor, not because some blonde white dude from the United States came down and helped rentiers put a dollar value on the wetlands. So more generally, green gentrification is one of a host of problems that we resilience researchers may be contributing to if we don't consider these sorts of larger social, political, and economic systems in which we're doing our research. For this month's episode, I recorded a call with someone more rigorously engaged in these considerations than I am. Nathan McClintock, an associate professor of urban studies and planning at Portland State University, recently wrote an article describing the forces that cause urban gardening in Portland, Oregon, to be a source of green gentrification, and he joins me uh, this week to talk. And for those of you curious, uh, the article that he wrote is entitled, I'm quoting here, Cultivating a Sustainability Capital, Urban Agriculture, Eco-Gentrification, and the Uneven Valorization of Social Reproduction. And in this episode, we are also joined by Marissa Matzler, a postdoctoral research fellow at the Cary Institute. However, uh, before the recording began, we actually started having mic-level problems with Marissa. So instead of joining us as a voice on the podcast, she was able to contribute comments and questions via a chat window, um, which I note at various points in the interview. And so in this episode, we talk about green gentrification, racialized othering, and what Nathan thinks we can do about all of this. And so thanks again for joining us at the Future Cities podcast. I hope to make this one of a series of explorations into these social, political, and economic uh, issues. And so if you enjoy it, make sure to subscribe and keep checking back at the first every month. just ask you to introduce yourself since you probably know your more important credentials than I do. Okay, sure. Um, so my name is Nathan McClintock, and I'm an associate professor of urban studies and planning at Portland State University. I got my PhD in geography from, US, uh, from UC Berkeley in 2011, and my dissertation research focused on uh, urban agriculture in Oakland, California. Um, but before that, I'd actually worked, uh, I did my master's research as a, uh, so my, my dissertation work was uh, more in the sort of realm of human geography. But I also had a background through my master's in soil science and agroecology. Uh, and I did my master's at North Carolina State University. And I looked at um, nitrogen cycling and organic farming systems, looking at composting and cover crops, etc. cetera. Um, 
And uh, actually, during that time, I was able to spend some time in Senegal uh, working with the Rodale Institute, which is an organic research uh, organization, organic farming research organization uh, that at the time has some um, partnerships in Senegal. That work uh, built on my interest and experience uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa and Mali uh, prior to my um, doing my master's degree. Uh, so it's sort of been a circuitous route um, from from a humanities undergrad to going into the Peace Corps, really kind of delving into the science of, of, of sustainable agriculture before becoming interested in more the um, the, the social questions surrounding uh, agriculture. Um, and I might be jumping ahead of the ahead of myself in terms of the questions you want me to answer, but <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. I guess uh, talk a bit more about the current work that you do at Portland State. Sure. Um, so yeah, my my work, uh, as I said before, I was doing um, uh, my work in in Oakland was on urban agriculture, and really, I was looking at soil contamination, but also the sort of rise of the food justice movement, and uh, it was it was environmental sort of a interdisciplinary project that bridged environmental planning with participatory research, um, with kind of traditional urban geography histories of histories of. Uh, of disinvestment in the city and, and trying to really make sense of why particular parts of, of Oakland um, were seeing a thriving urban agriculture scene. Where was the, where was the food justice movement coming from? Um, and so when I got to Portland, um, I got there to start my job. I got there um, and was really surprised to see that there wasn't the same sort of food justice, thriving food justice movement that I'd seen in, in Oakland. Most of the urban agriculture that I encountered, you know, six years ago when I moved to Portland was really framed in terms of environmental sustainability, self-sufficiency, very eco, uh, a very eco orientation vis-a-vis in, in, in Oakland, where it was very much tied to food justice, racial justice, you know, the history of the Black Panthers. So I was very surprised by just this, this stark difference in terms of what was motivating uh, urban agriculture projects in Portland. I was expecting to see, you know, urban ag gardens, et cetera really um, flourishing in the more low income areas of the city, but it was, it was actually quite the opposite. It was urban agriculture thriving in the, in the white um, hip gentrifying and gentrified neighborhoods. Uh, and so really my project, since I've been at Portland state has been really kind of trying to unpack this and make sense of it uh, to really sort of tease apart what I call referred to as urban agriculture's entanglement and these processes of gentrification. Uh, one of the things that came up in Oak in Oakland as I was leaving with people were starting to say, yeah, you know, urban agriculture, it's, it's, it's actually a lot of white hipsters are moving into the flatlands and doing urban agriculture. And there was, there was talk, you know, the, the, the concern over gentrification was really um, starting to, to bubble up. Actually, sorry to interrupt you here. Uh, can, this might be a good time to, uh, I guess, properly define uh, what you're referring to as gentrification or green gentrification sure. in particular. Well, yeah, that's a great, um, great point. Um, so gentrification in general, you know, people have defined it as the, the sort of progressive, um, the, the change in a neighborhood um, to cater to more affluent populations. Um, but there's a, you can't speak about gentrification without talking about a, a process of displacement that goes along with it. So we shouldn't just say gentrification in terms of like rising home values or, or revitalization or, or um, you know, the revitalization of a neighborhood. It comes with the, the displacement of, of the, the inhabitants who were there prior to this, this um, evaluation. So I'd say green gentrification is really gentrification and displacement uh, occurring within the same, uh, within, within a 
broader context of urban greening and environmental sustainability. So with the addition of green infrastructure and green amenities uh, playing a central role in this revitalization, their presence contributing to the rise in property values as well as to sort of the changing nature of the neighborhood, their you know green green amenities and green infrastructure attracting new residents, um, being marketed to new residents, um, and then really sort of tied into the the general displacement, the the general gentrification process as we know it. It's actually difficult, it's actually so difficult you, in today's day and age with urban greening playing such a central role in you know cities in, in urbanization processes. I mean, I would say a lot of you know the, it's not really green gentrification is not different than regular gentrification, except for the fact that that urban greening processes, uh, urban infrastructure plays a perhaps more visible and central role. Yeah, and so you deal primarily in this article with uh, sort of gardening beds, or I forgot the term that you actually used in the article, but these urban garden spaces. But uh, what are some other examples that you have of green gentrification? I deal with this here in Valdivia with regard to uh, the wetlands in the city, which are these more natural features. They're not constructed, although they are uh, Mm -hmm. managed. There's concerns about green gentrification that tie into the sort of valorization or, you know, valuing of the ecosystem services Mm -hmm. that they play. So, that's that's how I kind of come into it, but um, I mean, just for the sake of uh, a broader yeah. definition or like a better idea, yeah. of what are some other yeah. things, particularly in Portland or elsewhere, that cause green? Yeah, some other sort of types of infrastructure, perhaps, would be you know. So in Portland, we have these bioswales, uh, you know, that are similar to you know construct many constructed wetlands for drainage. You know, you could consider even green space. You know, the implementation of little mini po- mini parks or pocket parks. We, you know, you could consider bike lanes, um, anything that's sort of being couched and promoted for purposes of environmental sustainability and greening the city, I would say could fall under this, uh, these auspices. Um, you know, there's, there's work that's, that's done on, um, farm to table restaurants and farm to table grocery stores, like you're, you know, imagine your Whole Foods, et cetera. Um, and those sort of being wrapped into these processes of green gentrification as well, because these are things that people associate, they're, they're green amenities, they're things that people associate with living a more green lifestyle. So, you know, it's a pretty broad s- stretch. And, and again, it's difficult to sort of tease the green out of the general processes of, of gentrification and the amenities that, 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 that are attracting more affluent populations. Right. And so what actually got you interested in urban agriculture in the first place? Uh, you said you had worked on this again in uh, yeah. Oakland as well as Portland, but uh, what was so, kind of the, yeah, the drive I, for I it? Mean, I had a background in um, you know kind of global south uh, sustainable agricultural development, both in the Peace Corps and then in my master's work and afterwards working as a consultant in um, several countries. Um, but I was always sort of struck by the presence of agriculture in, in bustling cities in the global South, you know, people herding goats and cows up and down the streets, you know, through taxi cabs and, and people growing food anywhere they could, you know, on the side of the road and in little, you know, strips of the, the median, et cetera. Um, and so when I moved to Oakland to start my PhD, I was actually initially planning to do my work back um, in West Africa. But, uh, you know, there was such a sort of vibrant urban agriculture movement happening so close to home, really just out my, out my front door. That's how I got involved in it um, here. I'd say sort of domestically, and it, and it really shifted my shifted my focus domestically. Like I said, I think when I got when I was involved in urban agriculture um, in Oakland, 
I was very much sort of part of the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed group of people thinking of urban agriculture as this sort of revolutionary way to combat food injustice and, and, and a way to rally the troops, so to speak, about racial injustice and the realities of, of, the, of the Oakland flatlands. But, but I, I think the more time I spent with it, the less bright-eyed, bushy-tailed I became. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just sort of really started seeing that the critiques that were coming from different activists in, in Oakland were really starting to, you know, I was sort of blind to them at the beginning, and then I, they started to sink in. And then when I got here to Portland, it just seems so strikingly true that so much of the the activity around urban agriculture was sort of kind of white environmental fo- environmentally focused um, participants, um, and and these not really being spaces that people of color felt particularly welcome in, um, and so even if people of color, you know, have long participated in food production, the way that food production was going on in a city like Portland um, just sort of contributed to this sense of you know. Green Portland, sustainable Portland, Portlandia is really just a, it's, it's sort of a gentrifying space. It's a white space and, and there's not really a place for people of color um, in those spaces. I've never sort of made the claim that urban agriculture causes gentrification, but it's, it becomes, it's become clear and clear to me that it, it has become coded or, or, or seen or, or viewed as part of this larger process of gentrification. It's been coded as a sort of white space that, that people don't necessarily feel comfortable entering into if they don't fit that same demographic. Sure. And you, this isn't the list of questions that I had sent you, but um, it, it came up when you were talking about Oakland and uh, Portland and also the history uh, with uh, the Black Panther movement. And that reminded me of uh, MOVE in Philadelphia and the sort of legacy uh, that urban agriculture had just in terms of like um making these uh largely black community uh resilient or um not mm-hmm. resilient it's not the wrong term but less dependent on these sorts sure. of forces that they felt were working against them and it's interesting how that legacy you know is still continuing today but urban agriculture it's you know i definitely think about it in terms of the sort of like well now i know a lot of people who own like chicken coops right. um so that's that, that like really that sort of getting at the heart of what, I, what so. my research is on. It's you know that type of um, urban agriculture for what I would call self determination. You know, community self determination that you're you know referring to in, in Philly, um, that you see in parts of Detroit, that you certainly saw in the Oakland Flatlands back in the day, um, that you continue to see in. I mean, you see it in Portland as well. You know, that has always existed uh, and and that's always been a very important place. And, you know, places like D-Town Farms in Detroit, you know, it's really about, you know, community, you know, black, black self-determination. And at the same time, that's also the urban agriculture that doesn't get the attention in the media. Right. The 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 urban agriculture that people are practicing in black neighborhoods in Brooklyn or in Philly and, and that perhaps have been gardens that have been there for 50, 75 years don't receive the same attention that a rooftop garden, you know, cultivated by some 25 year old white hipsters, you know, with a savvy, savvy social media presence. Um, you know, they're, they're the ones who are getting the media coverage. And with that media coverage also comes material support. It comes, you know, in the form of grants, in the form of deals, um, for subsidized land, um, you know, getting the roof of a building for, for next to nothing. And, and so what you actually see is, is a real shift, you know, a disproportionate support of a particular type of urban agriculture 
practiced by a particular group of people. So what, and, 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 and in so doing the reinforcing of, of socioeconomic disparities. Um, and so really that's, that's the, that's what drives my, my work right, right now is, is kind of delving into that. And the paper that you're referring to in the annals of the AAG is really kind of getting at this question of where value comes from, right? It's very th- sort of theoretical par- p- paper, but you know, why is it that a garden by a hipster in a gentrifying neighborhood adds value, you know, is valorized, creates economic value in a way that a right and it's so yeah, why is the exact same practice, this practice of, of growing food, um, disproportionately valorized um, when it's done by gentrifiers, um, as opposed to people of color, you know, older people, people with a long tradition of gardening. You know, and as I just said, you know, key to the concern for me is just that in focusing on the sort of hip, highly visible kind of performative agriculture, you know, on the rooftop or, you know, sort of on the top of a restaurant or next to a restaurant or, you know, this this type of agriculture, focusing on that does contribute to, you know, it is it does just become another green amenity that is marketed in the development process. Yes. And this kind of gets into another question I didn't have here, and maybe it's difficult to go through the sorts of mechanisms, but could you explain how you see the sorts of uh, uneven valorization feeding into the sort of green gentrification system? You talk about and in your paper about cultural capital being converted into economic capital and things like that. Uh, which you can definitely talk about if you want to go that direction, or yeah, I mean, just I think I'll be a lot less articulate speaking about it <laughs> instead of writing, spending months writing the article. I think, like I said, there's this <laughs> uneven valorization that that occurs because in you know, so in, in Portland, in the sort of highly gentrifying area, you know, you have to have people who recognize the value in something in a green amenity, right? So you have to have like a high, a large enough concentration of of people to recognize the the kind of symbolic value of urban agriculture as this sustainable technology, as this green infrastructure, as this kind of eco, as this beneficial thing. Um, and the city, you know, takes pride on on its green orientation. And so things like urban gardens and rain gardens and things like that, they're, they, they are valued, right? They're, they're, they're part of the image um, that the city would like to convey. Um, and, you know, in this day and age, cities are, are very entrepreneurial. They depend on branding themselves in order to get investment and in order to get people to move, move there in order to get companies to settle there. Um, and so they're really trying to sell the lifestyle and, and you know, sell themselves as, as being livable places. And so you have to have people, enough people around who recognize that, you know, in a particular neighborhood who look at a garden and see, ooh, that person is uh, living sustainably. They're growing their own food. Um, they're diverting their rainwater into a rain garden instead of uh, into the gutter or into the sewage system. So you have to have both the, the agglomeration of people who recognize the, the activity as well as you know, an agglomeration of the activity itself. And so in some parts of town, you actually do have agglomerations of the activity. You have people um, growing food, but perhaps they're doing it in their backyard. Why? Because Historically, food production was something you did in your backyard and your front yard was uh, something that you kept neat and tidy and clean to present yourself not as a poor backwoods hillbilly or, you know, a sharecropper, 
but somebody who had made it, somebody who had, you know, achieved the American dream of a, of a, of a house and a, and a lawn. And so putting your garden out front um, would actually be very contrary to um, what, how you viewed what's necessary to sort of build that kind of cultural capital, the, you know, to, to sort of demonstrate your and perform um, how you've succeeded in life. So what you see is that there's diff- you know, different concentrations of people viewing diff- the same activity in different ways. In a city like Portland, at this kind of municipal level, you have the city itself supporting these, um, these, these green activities and these green amenities um, and green behaviors in a particular way. It dives right into the sort of branding and it dives right into the, the value that's produced for the city, right? So you, so you have people who are doing urban agriculture in places that are highly visible in the gentrifying areas, the, the areas that are viewed as highly livable. That all sort of fits into the narrative of the city. That all makes its way onto the into the um, videos, into the Portlandia episodes, into the the, the reports, the, the cover illustrations of the reports, is showing like, hey, look, this is how how great Portland is and how green of a city it is, which ultimately produces capital, right? But the the same activity that's going on in a low income neighborhood in East Portland, um, sort of in someone's backyard. Um, isn't isn't playing that role. It's not producing economic value in any way possible, but it's still the same um, sort of social reproduction that's taking place. And when I say social reproduction, I just mean uh, you know sort of a term from Marxian political economy. It's it's all the it's all the labor that goes into producing labor. So everything that happens at home, um, the work that's necessary to keep to to bring you know keep to, to keep laborers alive, essentially. The the way that I kind of understand this, um, as you've written, but also in general, you know, urban, agric- or urban agriculturists do not cash out on their own cultural capital, uh, but it's rentiers, boosters, and financiers uh, mm-hmm. exchange these free gifts of culture uh, for economic capital, you know, at a completely different scale. I mean, that's probably the more compelling aspect about this to me and like why it's such a, a big problem, because it's not as though... I mean, green gentrification is basically you have priced yourself out of the neighborhood, like you've made it nice enough, or other people have made your neighborhood appear nice enough, or, you know, promote such and such outward values that outside interests can use to produce their own sort of economic capital. And so it's, it's an issue of like lopsided, or gosh, I'm trying to think of the proper terms here. So I mean, it's distribution of the capital outside of the people who are actually producing it. You know, like you also have where it's produced and who it's produced by then fueling the gentrification process as well. Right. And so um, it's not as if one part of town just has poor, poor people and the other uh, originally that one part of town just had poor people and the other part had rich people. But there's a process that that moved people from one part of town to the other. Right. And so how my interest in how urban agriculture is part of this process is sort of thinking about what are the. What are the amenities that are both attracting people to a particular neighborhood? How and why are these amenities being valued in such a way that they then attract more people to that neighborhood and and attract more investment into that neighborhood, which then drives out those remaining uh, original inhabitants, right? So it's sort of how, how is it, how are these activities, you know, sort of fuel for the fire, fodder for the fire of, uh, of gentrification. And at the same time, you know, um, it's not obviously the activity itself because that activity is practiced by, you know, by everybody, but it's just, it, it's more valuable when it's practiced by somebody um, right. who will attract You've investment. How relatively few urban agriculturists are actually exactly. I mean, there's a, there's any a handful of who, the who financial capital you know, being do have generated market gardens this, where they're, right. 
you know, selling their produce, um, or, you know, maybe they're selling their skills. They, they, um, you know, give workshops and things like that. But for the most part, people are just growing food for themselves, for their, for their own lifestyle, for their own, you know, to, for social reproduction, to, to feed their families and, and to, 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 as recreation, to, 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 to provide a sense of fulfillment and, um, you know, mental health. Um, but no, they're not reaping the rewards and, you know, perhaps they're going to price themselves out of the neighborhood, or maybe they're, they're quote unquote, the pioneers, the, the gentrifiers who've just recently arrived in a, in a neighborhood. And then, you know, many more people just like them will be arriving uh, not long after. Yes. Um, and so I work with this kind of in the context of an ecosystem services uh, sort of impact where I, there are these wetlands in Valdivia and I'm in the process basically of trying to uh, assign or figure out what is the value of these wetlands in terms of like their flood mitigation. And so the problem sort of inherent in that is I'm trying to prove that they are valuable, but once you put, or like once you figure out the market worth of uh, something like this, then it's subject to all the regular forces of capitalism. So say a neighborhood with a wetland that's actually providing uh, some flood protection now, it might provide even more flood protection in the future uh, due to climate change. Basically, the, the issue that I have is I don't know how to assign a value to this sort of thing without potentially causing problems for the citizens that um, live into this place. And so I know you are kind of more involved in the urban planning side of things. So I was wondering, how do you sort of mm-hmm. reconcile this position um, as a like critical social theorist yeah. um, with the sort of work? So I mean, with this sort of analysis that you do? Like how do you how do you uh, bridge the gap here? I mean, it's a great question. Well, first of all, I wouldn't claim to be a planner by any stretch. I do teach in an urban studies and planning department and do my research there. Oh, okay. um, and I would say I, I certainly read and engage with plenty of um, you know scholarship on planning and scholarship of planning. But as a practitioner, um, I would say my kind of you know I do teach a food systems class, a food systems planning class. Um, but I would say and it's more in the realm of community development that that um, I would I would sort of put my hang my planning hat if I had to, um, and so you know I teach in the, our undergraduate community development program, and so that's I would say the approach that I take uh, in my in my kind of planning activities is is um, you know thinking about how to do community development in a way that is participatory that really does engage community um, that doesn't place the cart before the horse and go in and say, Hey, we need a garden. Let's see if we can get people to, you know, show up to a, show up to a meeting and then sort of like give us their pros and cons about the garden if they want it or not. Um, but then do it anyway. Right. <laughs> where, where participation is just sort of a, a checklist is it's a box off on a checklist, but really kind of putting, putting the needs of the community first and saying, Hey, all right, what's, what, what's going on? Here's well, like a, a palette of different, you know, interventions. Um, and maybe they're not even urban design related. Maybe they're actually what in other countries they refer to as social planning, right? You know, in, in terms of they might be, you know, economic development programs or job readiness programs or or maybe just jobs themselves, right? And so it, it's that question of, of what does a community need um, and really placing that as central. I think that's one one piece of the puzzle in terms of how I, how I reconcile, reconcile this issue. You know, Communities might feel that, no, we actually don't want gardens. 
right now because those are, are we don't want gardens unless we have some sort of other kind of guarantee of, of uh, you know, to protect housing prices or to, to, to keep people in the neighborhood. Uh, we don't want these green infrastructures until unless we are sure that, um, you know, we're going to be safe and, and be able to stay in our neighborhood. Um, so I think taking consideration of all that's really important. Another piece is for me that I've, that I've really been working on too, is it's sort of the flip side of the, um, of the concern over, over the, um, the kind of gentrifiers. Um, it's, 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 it's focusing on those people who, who do practice urban agriculture, but who don't receive the credit for it, who, who are overlooked for whom, you know, urban, their, their urban agriculture is not producing value for the city. And, and to me, it, Part of that is is there's sort of a kind of truth and reconciliation to it. It has to do with you know giving credit where credit's due. Um, you know, right now I, I have a project working with an, an African American organization that focuses on foodways. Their 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 focus is on sort of rekindling African American connections to uh, food and agriculture, and they run a, a farm at the Oregon Food Bank, and and they're really um, trying to engage more they're african-american themselves and they're trying to engage more people of color in in food production and so they they approached me said hey we really want to study the history of black gardens in portland and so we've been doing a a, an oral history project and an archival project to really kind of tease this apart and one of the fascinating things that we found was that it was really in albina the the um which was once the sort of um the black neighborhood of Portland, historically black neighborhood of Portland, that's, that's really the sort of ground central, uh, ground zero of gentrification. You know, that had a community gardening program that preceded the city's community gardening program. It really, in, in some ways, served as a model for the city's community gardening program. But it's not something that it's all part of the narrative or the history of the city's sustainability, um, you know, history of sustainability. So for me, it's it's, it's also giving credits where, where it's due so that those people actually get those same resources to divert resources, to emphasize and, and, and um, prioritize resourcing those people who've actually been part of it from the beginning. Um, and so that's, that's another sort of angle on the, I guess, on the kind of implementation um, side that I would, that I would um, emphasize. I guess that gets a part of it. Um, I'm trying to think of like larger lessons for this sort of uh, valuation of services of these green infrastructure. So, I mean, you, you mentioned well, this I, there. I'm not somebody who is a proponent of placing numeric values on these things. So that's just my, you know, I've come to that conclusion over my, over my engagement over the several years that I've been engaged in, in these types of projects. And, you know, I, so, several of the people who, you know, you work with, with the UREX project, you know, I've worked with them in the past on, um, at Portland State, we had a ecosystem services, um, IGER program. And, you know, I think that, especially for those, those coming from the social sciences, that very question of valuation was always the crux. And, and I think the questions you're raising are always the crux. What, what does it mean to actually place these numbers on something to add, a, you know, essentially we're adding an exchange value to something that previously only had a use value. And so, what are the sort of polit- what are the sort of political ramifications of doing something like that? And on one hand, you understand sort of from an ecological economics and or even an environmental economics perspective that it's that it's all part and part and parcel and necessary to to account for the externalities. And I get that. But what are we also doing politically? Um, what 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 floodgates are we opening politically and economically for not just gentrification but just commoditization in general? Right. And, and for the commodification of um, the commodification of nature. 
and and what is what are the implications of doing that as opposed to setting aside things and places outside of the market that aren't quanti- quantified um, because in doing so you are not reducing or abstracting um, the value of something down to a number or an index um, but you're actually you know saying this this place is value here are all of its multiple uses you know sort of a qualitative assessment a qualitative indexing where like look at all of the different ways that this place is used all of the different um, spiritual values that it has the cultural values that it has the the material values that that are related to social reproduction or they're related to everyday subsistence that it has you can you don't need to you don't need to quantify those to catalog them right and so for me that's more the approach that i take simply because you know everything (laughs) there is there is a there is a tendency to um quantify and therefore commodify everything. And if you can make, you know, if someone can make a buck off of something, they're going to do that. And by, you know, the first step in doing that is putting a price on it, right? Marissa points out here, uh, or she um, was wondering if you could go further into the ideas of cataloging versus uh, quantifying. So yeah, if you want to speak more about that. Just from a sort of research perspective, methodological perspective, I would say it is kind of the difference between doing qualitative and quantitative research. You're not cataloging in the sense of like, here, I'm going to come up with a a descriptive statistic to count the number of uses, but we're going to actually delve into those uses. We're going to, we're going to find how people like whatever the wetlands you're looking at or the gardens that I'm looking at, what are people's experiences with those? You know, what are, what are, what are they used for? What are people's relationship to place? What value does it place? What's the value of that place um, socially and culturally, historically, and in the present and in the future? What are, what are people's visions for it? What What is it? What, what type of sense of place does it provide? So these are all very abstract concepts, but they're all ones that are that I think we can all relate to. There's there are things that we feel uh, in ourselves. There there is no. I think I mean part of it is just sort of the the prioritization and the and the um, value of of quantitative science over qualitative science. The value of biophysical science over social science. Um, but you know, particularly people who are involved in interdisciplinary work environmental work, you know, there, there's such a, a rich opportunity for interdisciplinary collaborations that really place qualitative data uh, equally alongside the quantitative data. And I think, I think, you know, this is an example where you can qual- qualitatively catalog use values of a place uh, in a way that demonstrate its, um, how important it is, uh, that demonstrate its value rather than yeah. uh, assigning an index to that. And it's difficult because there's such a, such a pressure to actually value these spaces, perhaps especially in urban uh, locations where everything seems to have uh, price tags attached to it. There's uh, Your experiences in the city are much more metered in terms of the economic value of all of them because you're constantly being charged for them. So it's it's one of those experiences where, or it's a conflict for me because I feel like if we don't engage with this feature or if like we need to find mechanisms or think about ways to resist this sort of quantifying that can result uh, from cataloging in these spaces. And so Marissa points out here or raised the question of, so uh, what policy and planning mechanisms do you see as engaging these more qualitative sides of things that you're talking about? 
of the specific mechanisms, um, I don't feel qualified to comment on, but I could speak more broadly to say that, you know, for example, you know, an example that sort of speaks to what we are discussing would be parks, right? You know, a city park there, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in terms of the, if you pencil it out vis-a-vis the land values or a garden too, for that matter, right? But but gardens aren't necessarily, they don't have the same status and they don't have that same sort of permanence as a city park does. You know, a city park is the, it's that's some very, very valuable real estate, but it's, it, it, it certainly would be more valuable in terms of the exchange value um, as condos that are, you know, sold for three quarters of a million dollars each, et cetera. But nevertheless, we ascribe a particular value. I mean, you could then run a hedonic analysis and say, well, look at how much it increases the value of the properties surrounding it to have a park. But I still don't know that that pencils out, right? And and so we're, we're, we, there is a, a normative case and a normative um, approach that we think right. that there is some intrinsic value to, you know, green space, open space, fresh air, clean water, a view, right? And so these are the things that, again, you could, you can, in, you know, incorporate into a hedonic analysis and see what the impact of those things are on on prices, on exchange values. But is that what's actually driving the implementation of those things? I don't think so. I don't think that's why we build a park is so that we can increase the property values around it. Um, and so it's sort of tapping into that question of like, well, why are we building the park in the first place? What What do we hope we get out of it? And again, it doesn't, I don't think, boil down to us analyzing the cost benefit ratio of what's the increase, what's the increased benefit to public health. Um, if people, you know, X number of people go into the park and spend X number of hours there per day, what is, how does that increase their heart rate to a particular, you know, we can do that. And there's plenty of people who make their living doing that. But is that really where we need to direct our attention rather than having a sort of normal, you know, yeah. taking a normative stance and saying, this is a, a societal benefit. Of course, those normative stances are, are, are precisely the, the battleground, the, the battle, the terrain of politics, right? People different things. Let's look at, you know, what happened to the um, national monuments yesterday, right? Yes. This, I was about to bring this up uh, I mean, with the sort of administration changes and changes in politics. It is uh, we're constantly like on our back feet or on our back foot uh, trying to figure out like, well, how do I counter this argument? Because it wasn't right. like we didn't generate this space in the first place because of right. the dollar amount value. But that is suddenly the argument that we are having to combat because someone do the analysis, you know, although to be honest, the analysis of like oil and gas exploration in these places is not anywhere near as precise as it tends to be promoted as. But anyway, you get the idea. The, we have to sort of counter these sorts of arguments uh, in some cases, like with mm-hmm. Bears Ear or uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and say like, well, there's this dollar amount here. What is this doing for us? I guess the question is if like you don't boil it all down to one or the other, right? You don't just make it an economic analysis question. Because a lot of times it's not going to pan out. You know, the economic analysis won't give us what we want. And then then we're going to be living in a, in a wasteland, you know, one day. And we're, there, I was just reading about this yesterday uh, in terms of this term, solastalgia, which is this sentiment of, of kind of nostalgia, but in a place not being away, not homesickness away from being home, but you're at home and it's different than, than how it used to be. And, you know, it's sort of like looking around you at the wasteland that your home has become. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, we risk by just solely having an economic analysis, we, we risk losing all of those things that we actually hold, uh, that we value, but that we can't actually place a, a numeric value on, right? 
I, I think that's that's something that we have to remember. And so tapping into those stories and the, and the sort of qualitative analyses of those yes. of those values, placing those sort of front and center, and placing the the stories of people and their experiences side by side. And you know, and I I say this as someone who's who spent plenty of time running statistics, and 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 I still do. I still do. You know, I run stats on 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 sense on on GIS and on um, um, survey data, but it's you know. In the end, I, I, I'm very careful, and actually, I, I sort of see that as is just sort of a, a side, little bits of side data to the centrality of, of the qualitative data that I'm that I'm presenting first and foremost. I get that. Um, all right. On this note, uh, we have like three minutes left of our allotted time. Um, I could either ask like one question about you know ways you see going forward uh, this with your own research, or you know against these sort of things, or we can wrap. I guess I would just say, well, I mentioned, you know, the um, the the current research on sort of green gentrification and, and urban agriculture is I've been working on a co- uh, comparative study, uh, NSF funded comparative study in Portland and in Vancouver. And then I'm doing actually got it on another project that's funded by the um, National Health Institute in, of Quebec, looking at the same sort of taking the same methodology and looking at in Montreal as well. Um, so that's that's all sort of happening and wrapping up and we're going to turn the Portland Vancouver stuff into a book in the next year or two. And then the other thing though that I, I did mention that the the Urban Gardens project and that's really kind of taken me on a more kind of historical track and I'm actually really interested in 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 following this um you know historically because you know just to kind of get at this question of of illustrating this question of how we valued things differently in different times and places I think I think having a historical perspective is really important. And so what I'm looking at now is kind of thinking about these processes of displacement um, in Portland as they relate to land and then sort of using gardens and and food production as the window into looking into these larger, larger processes of of how race and capital and urbanization all go hand in hand. Um, That's sort of my next project is to really kind of go back in time to um, really the beginnings of, of, of the city and, and to sort of think about how these processes uh, were all were all tangled up. So I, there's definitely a lot more uh, archival research in my horizon because I think ultimately, particularly now in today's day and age and all of the, you know, how race is, 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 has flared up to the, to the forefront and how the ugly, uh, the ugly side of, of our country's past is, is still very much, festering, um, I think this type of uh, historical research will actually be pretty valuable to understanding uh, the present. So that's that's what I'm focused on right now, or will be focusing on more and more. Yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much yeah. for taking time to thanks talk for, to us about thanks this. Thanks for uh, hosting me and having uh, Definitely a lot to think about with my own research, um, certainly. Yeah, thanks so much.